I am Nicholas Bornels of Capital Inc. And I would like to welcome you all to this panel that is dealing with Jones Act and regulation and policy. Actually, the title is The Ecosystem of the American Maritime Industry and the State of Jones Act Today. Regulation and Jones Act are two uh, topics that are very connected. And we are delighted that we have with us today two experts who are going to discuss about this topic. We have uh, Jennifer Carpenter, who is the president and CEO of American Waterways Operators, and Charlie Papavizas, who is the partner, chair of the maritime practice at Winston and Strong LLP. Uh, unfortunately, because of uh, a scheduling conflict at the last minute, uh, we couldn't have our third panelist, uh, Aaron Smith, who is the president and CEO of the Offshore Marine Service Association. But with uh, Jennifer and Charlie, we have two experts, very well known in uh, people in the industry, and I will turn the floor over to them, welcome them, and uh, thank them for being with us. And of course, thanking you all for uh, being part of this uh, webinar. So Jennifer and Charlie, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Nicholas. And it's a real pleasure uh, to be here today. Um, so Jennifer, Jennifer is not only uh, an expert, but she's a leader in the industry, her organization, um, of course, is a well-known organization, a strong supporter of the Jones Act, but but Jennifer has led it to even greater heights, and and so it's, we're very fortunate to have her here to to talk about the Jones Act, um, the, the the politics around the Jones Act, some of the things, some of the current issues, how the Jones Act is working in the present environment. So what I asked Jennifer to do is sort of do a, a state of the state of the Jones Act, so to speak, in a few minutes. And then, and then we can go from there. And uh, Jennifer, it's all yours. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Nicholas. Really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you know, I think what I would say right at the outset is I don't think that the state of the Jones Act has ever been stronger, at least in my 32-ish years of experience in the industry. Um, what am I talking about there? It is statutorily very strong. There is strong bipartisan support in Congress for the Jones Act. We have seen in two successive Congresses, um, Congress move on a bipartisan basis to include language in the National Defense Authorization Act, clarifying, tightening, establishing guardrails around the Jones Act waiver process. That tells me Congress is very much committed to the Jones Act. Uh, second, we've got outstanding administration support. The Biden administration got off to really a flying start uh, from a Jones Act advocate's perspective. In its first month in office back in 2021, uh, it highlighted the Jones Act in its uh, Made in America by All Americans executive order. And the administration has continued to be a strong vocal supporter of the Jones Act ever since. Uh, 
I may be biased, but I think we've got the better of the arguments. They are strong and they are impactful. Uh, the intellectual case for the Jones Act is strong and it resonates with people. Um, we look at the rise of China as a strategic competitor whose maritime ambitions are, are striking and notable. We look at a land war in Europe that has made clear that logistics are extremely important in being able to project and maintain uh, power and national security interests. And we look back on our experience of COVID and the supply chain disruptions that we saw during the pandemic. And what we see is the Jones Act trade, the domestic maritime industry comparing really favorably with international shipping in terms of reliability on time deliveries. All of that has me feeling really good about the state of the Jones Act. Looking ahead, I'm really excited about new markets like offshore wind, which I have called and continue to call the biggest new opportunity for the domestic maritime industry in a generation. I'm also excited about the opportunity for our industry to play a role in the supply chain for greener forms of uh, fuel. Um, from LNG to renewable diesel to methanol, I think that there's opportunity there. So I'm feeling bullish on the Jones Act. And I'm going to say and not but, but and we can never be complacent. Um, I heard a line back in 2015 around the time that the uh, crude oil export ban was lifted that has stuck with me ever since. It was a lot of things in Washington are impossible until they're inevitable. And I thought, whoo, we Jones Act advocates forget that at our peril. So we have a constant educational mission. Um, just because we have a great story does not mean that other people know it. And it's on us to tell it, whether we're talking about new members of Congress, new members of an administration, uh, people in the non-contiguous trades, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, um, where misunderstanding of what the Jones Act does and does not require is great. And that doesn't blame anybody who doesn't understand it that says it's on us to make sure that they do. So that need never stops. Uh, the challenge of recruiting, retaining, advancing the next generation of mariners. So part of the audience that needs to hear and understand the story of the maritime industry is the next generation of folks who are going to crew our vessels and support them in shoreside positions really, really important. Um, and third, you know, bashing the Jones Act is easy. Uh, solving real problems like uh, adding resilience to Puerto Rico's energy grid or ensuring that New England has cost-effective supply of fuel in the midst of a tough winter, those things are hard. They take planning. They take investment. They can't be done, you know, with the push of a button in the heat of the moment or the cold of the moment um, or a short news cycle. So it's easy to say, ah, oh, it's the Jones Act problem. And we need to keep that in mind and never uh, become complacent about the deserved bipartisan support the law enjoys. We've got to continue telling its story. So back to you, Charlie. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. Uh, Jennifer, I think you answered all my questions already. So now I have to now I have to think of new ones. But can we can we let's let's for the for the moment at least let's back off the politics and let's talk a little bit about the economics. 
So what what is the what it, how would you describe the health of the inland barge industry today? The country everyone thought was going to be going into a recession. The inland barge industry, of course, moves a lot of basic commodities that are usually leading indicators for a recession. So what what is the, what is the health of the industry today? How's it doing? Yeah, thanks for asking. I think the health of the industry is strong. It is looking a lot better um, than two years ago or a year ago. Demand has really come back. Um, that is the good news. Um, high steel prices, while they have been challenging as have high prices generally, have also had the effect of discouraging overbuilding. So we've had a situation in which supply and demand have stayed relatively balanced, and that's a good thing. Um, people are a challenge. So our industry has experienced the same kinds of labor challenges that we've seen in the broader economy. And of course, we've got some additional challenges in that this is a fantastic place to make a career. I mean, it is awesome to see what a person with a high school education, a GED, you know, can do in terms of coming into the industry green, earning a six-figure salary in five, seven years, but not everybody wants to be deployed. Some people get seasick, uh, you know, so we've got the same challenges that the broader in, the broader economy has in a tight labor market, and we've got those special challenges. And that has been, candidly, a limiting factor uh, for some folks in our industry who have said, you know, I've got additional vessels that could be operating, demand to move that cargo is there, but I don't have the people to move the boats. Or I could, I could you know, uh, run an extra shift at my shipyard, demand is there, um, but I need more people. A little bit of alleviation of the near-term pressures in some places, but I am not declaring the uh, labor challenge over. Uh, I think there's a near-term acute dimension to it, and then there's a longer-term challenge, like I mentioned earlier, making sure we got that pipeline. So what what is the industry doing to, to get that pipeline going? In other words, we have obviously extremely low unemployment in the United States. It's the, the, the seafarer problem is a worldwide problem. The industrial worker problem is a worldwide problem. Is there, what is the industry doing? What initiatives do you have ongoing that might help with training, attraction, incentives? Yeah, so multi, kind of multiple uh, multiple things at once because it is not a situation for which there is you know kind of one solution. Oh, if we only X, you know, the problem will be solved. So on the recruitment side, um, the companies are getting much more proactive, intentional, and creative in advertising. You know, companies that did not have recruitment budgets uh, do now, and they are traveling the country and telling the story. Interestingly, kind of a, a victim of our own success. Something I've heard from some AWO members is we used to have generational employees. We used to have, you know, my grandfather, my dad uh, worked in this industry. Mm. As a result of some of those really good economic opportunities that I've mentioned, you know, a towboat captain today, their kids are going to college. They may not want to be working in the industry. That's a good problem to have. It shows the ladders of opportunity that the industries that the industry creates, but it also means we got to tell the story farther and wider uh, to a more diverse population. And I think companies are really embracing that challenge. Um, at the same time, we're working really hard um, to make sure that there are not 
barriers to folks staying in the industry. The Coast Guard is working to uh, essentially overhaul its credentialing system uh, so that it's a lot easier to work your way through the process of getting a credential. You're not in a kind of back and forth bureaucratic death spiral while you wait for somebody to send hard copy paper stuff to you while you're deployed on a boat. These are the kinds of small things um, that can be really discouraging to somebody, especially in an environment where there are other economic opportunities. So again, no silver bullet, but working on multiple fronts. So the, the switching topics a little bit again. So in the last few years, Congress has pumped in a ton of money into the infrastructure. It's being rolled out, of course, gradually. That's all the way it always works. Well, how's, how's that gonna affect the, the inland tug and barge industry? In other words, I'm assuming there's a huge backlog of Corps of Engineers projects that need funding. Do you, do you see that process working well? How, I mean, what, what, how do you see the impact over the next year or so? Yeah, so that investment is incredibly welcome and incredibly needed, and we're going to need more of it. Uh, incredibly welcome. As we saw in the Biden administration's recent transportation decarbonization blueprint, where they said, hey, part of the solution to decarbonizing the transportation industry writ large is moving more cargo by water, which is the most sustainable way to do it. Those infrastructure dollars are going to be really helpful in making sure we have a more efficient marine transportation system that both invites shippers to move more by water and makes it more efficient to do so. So if we've got a 1200 foot lock instead of a 600 foot lock and we're not queued up waiting to double lock, uh, that's not only more attractive to a shipper looking to get stuff from point A to point B faster, but it's also good for the environment because we're not burning fuel while we're sitting there. So that is really positive. Having said that, um, this is not one and done. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, I think, we've uh, realized to our chagrin and it's just the way it is, um, you know, the Corps of Engineers and Inland Waterways infrastructure projects have been hit by inflation just like everything else has. So projects that, you know, we would have hoped were funded to completion, they're not. And there's gonna be an additional need um, to keep investing infrastructure dollars to support a really robust, efficient waterway system. And, and there's, there's also issues about the money moving out slowly too, right? Uh, because uh, I mean, I noticed the, the recent results reported by one of the big dredging companies were fairly poor for last year. And you would have expected, I think that with all, all this money, all the projects being better funded would have meant a lot of business. But but there's a lag, at least at least what I see. What what do you think? There there is, you know, from authorizing funds to appropriating funds to actually letting contracts spending that money, you know, that is that is a process. And so uh, I think it's just really important to remember that we got to be attentive to every piece of that. And it's not a problem solved, a law was passed. No, no, you know, uh, we've not finished the project until we've had the uh, ribbon cutting ceremony and we've actually got, uh, you know, toes locking through. So let's, let's go back to the politics a little bit. You mentioned waiver, the changes to the waiver statute um, two, in, in two occasions in the last few years. Uh, you and I have talked about the waiver statute. What, what do you say to someone who um, views the Jones Act as an impediment to something they might want to do? They want to get a waiver. 
they look at the law, they find out it's pretty restrictive the way it's been amended the last couple of times. What, what do you say to those kind of those people in those sorts of positions? So what I say is the marine transportation industry exists to solve transportation and logistical challenges for shippers. So let's sit down and talk about what you need. And, you know, let's, if your needs, you've got new needs, offshore wind or a new service that makes sense. And we're seeing all kinds of, you know, exciting opportunities there. Let's sit down and let's talk about what you need. And, you know, this is an industry that is willing to invest big money um, to serve demonstrated needs. Nobody wants to build a vessel for which the need is not clear, you know, kind of on spec and then sit around and wait to see if there's a need for it. So I actually hope that, uh, you know, the clarification from Congress that, no, okay, there's a reason for the Jones Act waiver process, it needs to exist and it is there to you know, address national defense exigencies that cannot be met by US flag vessels. That our industry will never stand in the way of that. But what it's not meant to do is be a sort of easy button. Gee, it would be really nice to have a dedicated source of supply for commodity X, but I don't really want to invest in a long-term contract to ensure that I'd rather play the spot market and hopefully, you know, I can get good rates and then there's the occasional year where I can't and, you know, that doesn't address the long-term issue. So I hope that the clarity from Congress that, no, no, Jones Act waivers should be safe, legal, and rare um, gets folks really thinking about, hey, what do we need to do? I mean, do you agree that there are some situations where maybe some ramp is needed. I mean, the launch barge situation is a, is a good example where um, there, there, for a period of time, there weren't large enough barges in the US flag fleet to launch top um, uh, platform jackets in the Gulf of Mexico. And it was a chicken and egg problem. Nobody wanted to build them because they, they, weren't, they, they wouldn't be used and so on. And the way Congress did it was if one was built in the United States, it had to be used. But before then, before they were available, foreign barges could be used. I mean, do you see that working in some other aspect of maybe offshore wind or some other business? I think it's important to sort of look at what the needs are and what is our lead time to fill them. And I think that that's a really important thing. I mean, I. I think it's very important that we recognize that there are new markets emerging for which there may not have been US flag vessels previously because the market didn't exist. So most of the time we have some lead time and we see that with offshore wind. You know, there is an extended process of permitting and site preparation and contracting, et cetera. So I think there is ample time to kind of sit down and say, okay, what are we going to need in 2025? What are we going to need in 2027? Let's get busy and ensure that it's there. To me, that is not a situation in which we need a Jones Act waiver. That is a situation in which we need to get wind developers and US vessel operators talking about different, different ways to meet their transportation needs. So you, I'm sure you know that the Puerto Rico governor, Pedro Pierre Luisi, who by the way was my classmate at GW Law School, Pedro asked for a diesel waiver in emergencies um, uh, in a letter to Congress um, about a month ago. What, what is, what's your position on that uh, waiver request? <laughs> 
okay, respectfully to your former classmate, I think that request had a lot more to do with the 2024 Puerto Rico governor's race than with a dearth of diesel. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You're, you're a politician Rico. acted like a politician? That's shocking news. Shocked, shocked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that had and a that's lot more gonna, to That's do. all you're going to say on it? I'm going to say I think that had a lot more to do with political positioning than anything else. And what I think is really interesting is when you actually look at, you know, sort of the history of uh, the Jones Act trade and Puerto Rico, what you see is the domestic maritime industry has been a vital lifeline for Puerto Rico. I mean, we saw that post Hurricane Maria, where we had Jones Act vessels delivering cargo, we had a landside transportation distribution network, containers stacked up on the port, couldn't get on trucks to get where they needed to go. Um, we've seen incredible investment in state of the art LNG fueled container ships by domestic carriers to serve the Puerto Rico trade. So I think there's a real demonstrated history of the domestic maritime industry delivering for Puerto Rico. Um, that's happening with fuel today. Um, and I think there's plenty of opportunity uh, for more investment in that area as the island looks at, you know, how can its electrical grid be made more resilient? Uh, well, well your, uh, your position was also shocking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on, on offshore wind, can we expand a little bit about why you think that's a, an opportunity for Jones Act owners and operators? Yeah, absolutely. I, I heard uh, a representative from one of the big offshore wind companies say uh, at one point last year, offshore wind is a maritime industry. And I thought, that's a great way to put it. It really is. I mean, we're talking about building large structures in the ocean and operating them and servicing them and transmitting power from them to shore. All of those are inherently maritime activities. And Congress has clarified um, most recently a couple of years ago um, that insofar as transportation um, of cargo between another point in the US and an installation used for offshore renewable energy, that is subject to US laws. That is a Jones Act move. Um, and so much of the work that is going to need to be done to build out, to maintain, to service, and eventually to decommission um, offshore wind farms is going to need to be done by American vessels. I think it's important to just note, it's not all gonna need to be done by American vessels. There are um, activities which are not transportation related. Um, and there's no question, we need more vessels to do those things. Um, that is really a matter of a new emerging industry for which, you know, not only the United States, but also the world is building new vessels to accommodate what needs to be done, which is different, bigger of a larger scale, you know, than has ever been done before. Yeah, well, to me, there's obviously a distinction to be made between the build out and the O&M phase, the, the, the 20, 25 year O&M phase, where is you, Jones Act vessels are essential but not so essential for the build-out phase. Lots of things can be done. And fortunately for our industry, I would say, can be done by, by foreign vessels within the uh, bounds of the Jones Act. 
because otherwise it wouldn't happen at all because we don't have the turbine installation vessels, cable lay vessels, and so on. They just don't exist in the U.S. flag fleet, as you said before, because they weren't needed. There's no reason to somebody to have built the WTIV um, hoping that there might be an offshore wind industry. But do you but do you do you see it that way? And do you what what do you think of that? That the that the that the European experience is important uh, and um, and is essential. So what I would say is there's huge opportunity for partnership here. And I would also note that we don't have enough WTIVs in the world. I mean, if you look around, it's not only none of these, you know, countries or continents or markets, offshore wind goals exist in a, va in a vacuum. So you've got U.S. goals, you've got European goals, you've got Asian goals. Um, whoa. I mean, there is so much. And, you know, it's like container ships, right? The size of offshore wind turbines has just grown exponentially. So we don't have enough WTIVs in the world um, to do what needs to be done. There are going to have to be a lot more. Now, how do developers uh, building these projects in US waters get the job done. There are different models and I think that is just fine. So, you know, as an American I'm and a Virginian, I'm delighted to see uh, Dominion uh, building a US flag WTIV, uh, first of its kind. That's gonna have great economic uh, benefits throughout a broad swath of this country. It's not the only way to skin the cat. There are AWO members who are working in partnership with foreign developers who are gonna be using foreign built WTIVs and feeder barges. Um, and so, you know, that gets to, hey, what are your business needs? And I think it's also cool that there are, you know, a variety of emerging technologies. And indeed, we're gonna need that, right? There are places where you can't get a WTIV, you know, under a bridge. And so you're gonna need to use a feeder barge solution to deal with that. So lots of opportunities there. But again, I think that's sort of for business people to figure out. Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned cooperation because that's certainly what we've seen. And I mean, you, do you, so you, you view the, the offshore wind industry as an important place for American companies to cooperate with Europe, mainly European companies, right? Correct. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's just huge, huge opportunity here, um, mutually beneficial opportunity. Um, you know, absolutely, we should be learning from folks who are farther down the road toward development of offshore wind resources than we are in this country. Um, and we should also, you know, be approaching it not from a, well, this is the way we did it, they did it in Europe, but, you know, no, we're going to do it in a way that makes sense under the framework of U.S. law that fits, you know, U.S topography, port infrastructure, et cetera. So I just think huge mutually beneficial opportunity. This is not us versus them. This is us working together to uh, harness these resources. So um, you, you mentioned building vessels for the trade um, and shipyards aren't exactly in your bailiwick, but they're pretty closely close, close to. Um, do we have enough shipyard capacity to build what's necessary? I mean, do, do we do we have enough yards that can work aluminum for CTVs and enough yards that can do a jackup um, like Keppel is doing for Dominion? So, you know, I'm thinking of something that I heard Matt Paxton uh, or saw Matt Paxton, the head of the Shipbuilders Council of America, uh, quoted as saying in a recent congressional hearing, and he was specifically talking about uh, demand signals 
from the US military. And he was basically saying, give us a consistent demand signal, you know, and US shipyards will do what is needed. I think that there is a real, real, real parallel there on the offshore wind side. Um, so clear demand signal, yep, you know, we've got these projects, these are the permitting timeframes, these are the needs. Uh, I think we will see US shipbuilders uh, step up to meet those needs. And I also think um, that, you know, we will get better and faster as we get more experience in this area. So I, I'm hopeful that uh, there's just a lot of uh, good work ahead to be done. You mentioned that there's not enough WTIVs in the world, and you're reminding me of a story where I was talking to some of a Danish client, and they were saying, Charlie, you don't understand. There's only, and I can't remember the exact number, there's only six masters in Denmark that can master, that can captain a WTIV. In other words, it was literally that is not just WTIVs, it's how many people are available to actually that have the experience and can do it. So, so yeah. sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, you know, it's been really interesting to me um, as I've participated in offshore wind conferences, discussions over the last couple of years, how many kind of uh, parallels I hear in, we're building a new industry from scratch in this country. So some of the same things that you could say about vessels, you can say about workforce, or you can say about port infrastructure. We don't have it yet because we haven't needed it, but we better get busy and create it because we're gonna need it. And the time to do that, the time to be ramping up is now, you know, whether it is attracting, training, retraining, um, you know, people to work in the industry, whether it is making sure we've got the port infrastructure that can do what needs to be done, whether it's building the vessels. So, you know, like, let's get on it. If we sit around going, man, we don't have it, then we're not going to have it. And, and that would be a problem. But fortunately, there's no reason to do that. So I'm going to switch switch topics on you again. So a, a number of state legislature legislatures have adopted resolutions supporting the Jones Act. Uh, could you comment about that? I mean, is that a good thing? I mean, is that something you guys, I'm assuming, support? Uh, what, what's what's going on with that effort? Yeah, I think it's really encouraging. We have seen that, and I may forget some, but we've seen that in West Virginia. Uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Virginia, just saw the Washington State Senate, the Kentucky legislature within the last couple of weeks. And I think this kind of goes back to what I said at the very outset about, I really like our arguments, you know, I think there is a real recognition that it is important you know, to the security, the national, the homeland, the economic security of the United States, uh, that we have the ability to control our maritime borders, that we are able to uh, control our own supply chain. And oh, by the way, these are great jobs for Americans. And so I think that these state resolutions are really kind of a reflection of that realization that ah, this is not some kind of egghead ivory tower inside the beltway think tank debate this is like real good stuff that is good for you know the heartland of this country so you you said at the outset you said it just now that the arguments are good but you never know what might happen pointing to the the uh the repeal of the crude oil export ban uh which i also use an example of you never know 
what can happen suddenly that everyone thought would never happen. But so where what 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 is the real state of the Jones Act in terms of the politics? I mean, is there is there any real genuine threat out there at the moment? I mean, what do you guys what do you guys worry about? What what might what confluence of events might occur that would cause you worry? So what I think is always really important is we never want to have um, politicians, political leaders, government officials feel like, man, they are, you know, standing out there taking a position they've always taken or supporting something, but they're not feeling like the base of support is there for that position, whether that is sort of the intellectual argument for it or popular support for it. And so that's why I feel like, you know, we're in a great position right now with respect to, uh, you know, the, the, the law is solid. Uh, the waiver statute, the waiver process, I think is in very good shape, but we gotta make sure that, you know, the next class of members of Congress, the next group of administration officials, and I'm not even talking about a future administration, just, you know, new folks within the administration as they come in, that they understand, you know, what is the Jones Act? Why is the domestic maritime industry important? That kind of constantly ensuring the foundation, you know, for that support. Because if you don't have that, then you find that your support is hollow. And that's what we can't have. I feel very good right now that our support is strong, that there is a really, you know, robust foundation. And that's something we just can't take for granted. That's one of the reasons I think the state Jones Act resolutions are very helpful, you know, because they really demonstrate that uh, kind of grassroots support. And oh, by the way, you know, some of those state legislators are going to end up members of Congress someday. Um, so that's all to the good. Yeah. So I, at one time, there was a fear, I think, that international trade agreements, multilateral trade agreements in particular, might be a, a venue for um, Jones Act attacks. Uh, in other words, that the Jones Act might be traded for something else in, the context, in that sort of a context. Basically, those agreements are, are all in stasis, so to speak, at the moment. In other words, no one is pursuing those sorts of things. I mean, do you still view international trade negotiations as a potential threat to the Jones Act? I think we have got to always have our eyes wide open and be vigilant. And anytime you're in a situation where it's, you know, semi-opaque uh, negotiations, uh, an atmosphere where you can oh, have- present a, a, And present it to Congress on a fast track authority. With on no a fast track basis, that could be a challenge. I, I do think, so so yes, I think that's something we've got to be cognizant of as a challenge. I think it's interesting to see that a lot of the conversation right now around international trade, you know, concerns nearshoring and what should a country be able to need to, you know, do on a preferential basis for itself um, because we got to provide for our own security. So I think that is, you know, there is some tension between that and pure free trade. And I think the, we gotta be able to take care of ourselves uh, side of things has uh, you know, been ascendant um, under uh, both Republican and Democratic administrations. No, um, again, nothing, uh, you know, not, never anything to uh, take for granted. Well, no, and there is, as you know, there's, a, there's a, essentially an exception in the GATT 94 and, and previously for the Jones Act and related laws, 
uh, where the United States insisted that those be kept out of the national treatment and other obligations that the United States obligated itself to. Um, so I, you would you would imagine that the United States would stick with that position. I mean, is that your feeling also? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Jones Act, the Jones Act exists for a reason. It's not like, oh, my God, you know, this is like, uh, <laughs> this is this thing we have to be a little bit embarrassed about. No, we don't. You know, 80% of, uh, you know, the world's maritime coastlines are governed by similar statutes. So there's a reason that countries feel like they need to control their own domestic shipping. Um, and we do too. And we should. Well, it's I, not I, us who. When I'm asked about the, you know, how safe the Jones Act is, I also point out that whereas in the past there have been organized efforts, I mean, mind you, not recently. Uh, at the moment, I would not say that there is an organized effort. Maybe, maybe you would disagree with me. Well, I mean, what do you think about that? Whether there's an organized effort to repeal or modify the Jones Act. You know, I think we see opportunistic attempts. Uh, you know, by oil traders to do things more cheaply, make a few extra bucks by using a foreign, uh, you know, by using a foreign vessel from time to time. I think we see uh, kind of cer a certain, uh, you know, strain of libertarian thinkers who just don't like the Jones Act. They have an allergy to it. You know, it feels protectionist and they don't like it. Um, you know, there is the, uh, oh my gosh, wait, what am I going to do? I didn't plan ahead and ensure this supply. And now I'm scrambling because I'm facing the prospect of paying a lot to have something delivered to be on the spot market. Maybe I need a Jones Act waiver. So we have all of those things. I don't think all of those forces are working in league. Um, but I think, you know, those are some of the strains of Jones Act skepticism or hostility or or I don't have an ideological position. I just want to make more money that we sometimes see. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, what I meant, what I meant is there's really nothing comparable to AMP, the American Maritime Partnership, uh, as an anti-AMP, so to speak. In other words, an, uh, an organization of organizations. Uh, and, and, and there hasn't been for a long time. Uh, and, yeah, and sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, th that's right. And I think that, uh, you know, that is because uh, there are a lot of really good reasons um, for the Jones Act's maintenance uh, into the future. And I think that I mentioned, you know, the maritime industry is in the business of solving transportation and logistics challenges for customers. As long as we, we keep that in mind, you know, it's not about us, it's about the customers that we serve, then I think there won't be that kind of organized opposition to it because folks will feel like, hey, this is working for me. And by the way, it's working for the country. I really don't want to have, you know, vessels, uh, you know, built by and operated by, uh, you know, the Chinese uh, moving cargo on the U.S. inland waterways. As, as you know, Congress often changes the Jones Act in little ways, um, sometimes for individual vessels, sometimes for individual activities. Um, you know, that's that's sort of a constant theme. Um, I mean, is that is that a danger to the Jones Act? Is that is that a good thing? Because it lets some steam out of the kettle, so to speak. Um, what do you what do you think? 
again, constant vigilance. You know, I mean, there are the Jones Act waiver process exists for a reason. I think the circumstances when a Jones Act waiver is truly necessary to meet a national defense need that can't be met by a U.S. vessel, those are going to be few and far between. Um, but if they are there, then the maritime, the U.S. maritime industry is not going to stand in the way. That wouldn't be good for us. That wouldn't be good for the Jones Act. So Jennifer, we, we're about out of time. Eleni has advised me of that. Uh, I'll give you the last word. And if you if you can focus on, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the Jones Act and its future? I am absolutely optimistic about the future of the Jones Act. This is a great industry that does incredibly important work uh, for our country, for shippers. Uh, it is a fantastic place to make a career. And I feel like I've got one of the world's best jobs getting to tell that story. Thank you for letting me do it a little bit today. Thank you. I mean, uh, your, your usual enthusiastic self, which was perfect. Um, thank you. Thanks again to the audience for listening. And uh, thanks again, Nicholas. Well, I have to say this was uh, not only insightful, but uh, very dynamic. So thank you to both of you for being part of it. Uh, also, thank you, Charlie, for being a great sponsor of this event and a great partner. And uh, as expected, uh, the discussion has been so vibrant, we ran out of time. So well, I, ran, uh, I ran out of questions, so it's a good thing we ran out of time. <laughs> well, you ran out of questions at the right time. <laughs> but having said that, uh, I would kindly ask uh, the participants uh, to uh, submit any questions that they can uh, via email. Uh, we have a few that came already in, and we are going to reply to you directly. I will pass them on to Charlie and Jennifer. So please, uh, those of you who have not already submitted questions, submit them to webinars at capitallink.com, and uh, Charlie and Jennifer will get back to you. Again, tremendous thanks for, uh, for a great panel. Thank Thanks you so much. Take Thanks. care, everybody.